Hello and welcome back to Rock Band's podcast. I'm your host, Jonathan Maliberti. Don't forget to subscribe to Rock Band's podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Follow us on social media at Rock Band's Podcast and share us with all of your rock and roll loving friends. If you like the show, please leave a review. I really appreciate it. It really helps. All right, let's get to it. Rolling Stones Part 9. The Rolling Stones were at a musical crossroads in 1968. Mick Jagger and Keith Richards had long become the productive songwriters of the band, and with hits like Satisfaction, Paint It Black, and Let's Spend the Night Together, they were at the peak of their popular music making in the 1960s. But their most recent album, their Satanic Majesty's Request, was a critical flop, and it left fans disappointed and bored. The Stones sounded overproduced and overindulgent, and the quality of their songs wasn't what it should have been. It wasn't an easy time to be a popular musician, either. The Beatles set the standard, and they had yet to have a bad album. Other acts like The Who, The Birds, Bob Dylan, Jimi Hendrix, and others were making it harder to get away with the basic pop song formula that the Stones had been relying on since 1964, which really helped them top the charts and earn praise for the years that they'd been successful. Other bands like The Animals, The Dave Clark Five, and The Beach Boys kind of slipped out of favor thanks to internal chaos in their own bands and creative problems. The musical landscape had shifted really dramatically in the mid-1960s, and bands that didn't evolve didn't last. And given the tension and dysfunction within the band during this period, it's not that hard to imagine a world where the Rolling Stones experience a similar fate had they not turned it all around in 1968. Luckily for the Stones, their songwriting certainly wasn't the problem. It was on the production side that they needed help. They needed an authority in the studio to call balls and strikes, to inspire them to play better and prevent them from experimenting too aimlessly, to turn their songs and ideas into great rock and roll records. Up until Satanic Majesties, it was Andrew Luke Oldham who did the production. But Oldham wasn't a music guy. He was a young businessman, uh, and his lack of musical experience was kind of a hindrance to the Stones. Oldham was crucial to their image and their early sound, but he was nothing like a George Martin, right? He wasn't a classically trained musician and production professional. But the Stones needed someone different. They weren't the Beatles. They didn't want to sound artsier, avant-garde, or neoclassical. For a minute, they tried to go without a producer, but as we discussed in the last episode, it was pretty much a disaster. And their blues roots were completely buried under LSD, beads, and baroque pop experimentation. The Stones knew that they needed a producer, but this time a real pro. They needed someone who would help them capture their true sound and emphasize how much they'd developed as players and writers since 1962. They wanted to rediscover their sound, which was rooted in the blues and distorted by pop and rock, and turn it into something extraordinary, something new. They decided that the right person for the job was Jimmy Miller. Jimmy Miller was an up-and-coming rock and roll producer in the UK scene during the mid-1960s. He was an American, but he rose to prominence as the producer for the Spencer Davis Group with hits like Gimme Some Good Lovin'. Miller had a great working relationship with Steve Winwood, for example, the organ player, singer, and songwriter for the Spencer Davis Group, 
and he continued to work with Winwood, uh, even in his with his new band Traffic, and he made a big splash with his production style on Traffic's debut album, Mr. Fantasy. Mr. Fantasy was considered to be an excellent art rock, uh, rock and roll album uh, of the time. Mick Jagger really liked the sound of Traffic's music, so in early 1968, he asked Jimmy Miller to produce the next Stones record. Jimmy Miller recalled joining forces with the Stones, saying, quote, I got a call from Mick one night, and he explained how he felt uneasy while producing the Satanic Majesties album. It's not only physically impossible, but mentally a strain to have to be on two sides of the glass at once. Mick said he liked what I had done with Traffic and asked me to produce the Stones' next album. I've always been a Stones fan, so of course I agreed, unquote. At the time, hiring Jimmy Miller felt sort of like a desperate way to get some sort of momentum again, to get the creative juices flowing and fight the band's decline. Little did they know, but Jimmy Miller would not only help them stave off their decline, but bring them into a new prime and turn them into the legendary Rolling Stones that we know today. Keith Richards said of this moment, quote, We'd run out of gas. I don't think I realized it at the time, but that was a period where we could have foundered. And this is where Jimmy Miller comes into the picture as our new producer. What a great collaboration. Out of the drift, we extracted Beggar's Banquet and helped take the stones to a different level. This is where we had to pull out the good stuff, and we did." Unquote. The first work that Jimmy Miller and the Rolling Stones did together was in March of 1968, when they informally began recording their next album, Beggar's Banquet. They recorded songs like Street Fighting Man, Child of the Moon, Jigsaw Puzzle, and of course, the first Jimmy Miller produced song the band would put out was the iconic Jumpin' Jack Flash, a song that sounds so much like a Rolling Stones record, it's hard to believe that when it was released in 1968, the sound came as a complete shock to even the band. Jumpin' Jack Flash is really a team effort, and every band member contributed something to the song. The origins of the distinctive riff are somewhat unclear. Bill Wyman said that he came up with the flash riff on a piano while he was messing around in the studio with Charlie and Brian. Wyman said, quote, One night during rehearsals, I was sitting at the piano waiting for Mick and Keith to arrive. Charlie and Brian came in as I was playing the electronic keyboard, messing around with a great riff I'd found. Charlie and Brian began jamming with me and it sounded really good and tough. When Mick and Keith walked in, they said, Keep playing that and don't forget it. It sounds great. The part I compose works perfectly, but the credit for this, one of our best tracks ever, reads Jagger Richards, unquote. There are disputes about songwriting credit in almost every band, but the song's riff isn't the only thing about Flash that makes it a great song. Part of what makes this song so great is the guitar sound. Keith Richards was never much for complicated guitar sounds, he didn't like pedals or effects, but he did like getting the most out of his tone. Around 1968, Keith got into the habit of plugging his acoustic guitar into a cassette player and using it as a miniature amplifier, and when he overloaded it, it sounded really big and distorted. A few songs, like Street Fighting Man, sound like distorted electric guitar songs, but they're actually really acoustic guitars played through cassette players. With Jumpin' Jack Flash, he tuned his guitar to an open tuning, either open D or open E, and he played it through an overloaded cassette player and recorded it in the studio, and the rest of the band filed in. Mick wrote the lyrics, Brian plays the electric guitar, and Bill plays organ, Charlie on drums, and Keith plays the main guitar and the bass part. It was pretty clear right after they finished recording it that Jumpin' Jack Flash was one of their best ever songs. 
And it was a totally new sound for the Stones. They'd never done anything quite like Jumpin' Jack Flash, and they probably didn't even know that they were capable of it. The song was a definitive moment for the band because it became kind of their trademark sound, the big riff-driven rock and roll sound. And it would define their sound for the next decade. After some discussion, the Stones decided to release Jumpin' Jack Flash as their next single. There was some talk about releasing Child of the Moon as the A-side, but they settled on putting that as the B-side and putting Jumpin' Jack Flash out as the lead single. The Stones really needed a number one hit. They hadn't topped the charts since Paint It Black two years before, in which time the Beatles had had seven number one singles and released Revolver, Sgt. Pepper, and Magical Mystery Tour. With a big hit single, the Rolling Stones could start to correct the record and reclaim their status, but a flop would have doomed them. On May 24, 1968, the Rolling Stones released Jumpin' Jack Flash, which quickly rose to the top spot in Britain and did almost as well in the United States. Critics were thrilled and praised the record as a much-needed return to form for the Rolling Stones. The band doubled down on pushing this record, too. They did a now-famous photo shoot with Brian holding a glass of red wine and a devil's pitchfork, as well as a music video. They also shocked their fans with a surprise performance at an award show, their first live performance in the UK in two years, where they played Jumpin' Jack Flash in satisfaction and received an overwhelming reaction of joy and support, just like they did in the old days. The performance was also Brian Jones's final live concert appearance with the band. But the old days were far away, and the Stones would have to work much harder to impress than they had been used to. They couldn't just cover old blues standards or spend a few days in the recording studio putting together an album. 1967 was the year where experimental music reigned supreme, and 1968 would be the year that acts would rediscover a more organic, simple approach to their music, or be thrown by the wayside. 68 was the year where quality really mattered. After a crazy 1967 year of music, Bob Dylan released his highly anticipated follow-up to Blonde on Blonde, John Wesley Harding, in December of 1967. People expected Dylan to continue this trend of maybe psychedelic electric pop, but he actually went hard the other way. John Wesley Harding was a really simple, folky acoustic album that was so bare bones it shocked people at the time, and nobody really knew what to make of it. It was a sort of a protest album against Sgt. Pepper, Jimi Hendrix, and Satanic Majesties, and something about that album really landed with people. Dylan was really considered to be the standard bearer of art rock these days, so what he did really mattered, especially coming off his previous two albums, uh, which were so important and, and just so influential. John Wesley Harding was at least an indicator of what was going to come in popular music in 1968. And at best, it was a massively influential album that pushed pop acts into more of a roots rock direction. Either way, 68 would be yet another year where rock and roll changed dramatically, and the Rolling Stones luckily caught on. Throughout the spring of 1968, the Rolling Stones kept working on Beggar's Banquet. That spring, they put the finishing touches on a quirky country-sounding song called Jigsaw Puzzle, which featured a great slide guitar part played by Keith, and a blues song called Parachute Woman, where all five members of the band really play together well. 
The band also started writing some really folky and country-sounding numbers, which is a theme throughout Beggar's Banquet. Songs like Dear Doctor, where Mick and Keith share the lead vocals, and Factory Girl, which sounds like a cross between American country and Irish folk. The lyrics in all three of these songs are all sort of comical and lighthearted, very different from the lyrics that the Stones had written to date. Mick Jagger said of the lyrics, quote, The country songs like Factory Girl or Dear Doctor on Beggar's Banquet were really pastiche. There's a sense of humor in country music anyway, a way of looking at life in a humorous kind of way. And I think we were just acknowledging that element of the music. Unquote. Salt of the Earth was designed to be an acoustic, working-class anthem, with Mick and Keith singing Let's Drink to the Hardworking People. That featured Keith on sly guitar and, I think, some excellent drums by Charlie. Acoustic folk wasn't the only sound on the album, though. Beggar's Banquet has a lot of rock and roll on it. Stray Cat Blues, that trademark Rolling Stone sound, comes back, this time with creepy lyrics about a young groupie shrieked by Mick Jagger and some piercing electric guitar from Keith. Street Fighting Man is one of their strongest songs, maybe one of the strongest songs in the entire Stones catalog, as well as one of the most unique. Street Fighting Man always sounded to me, from a production standpoint, to be almost Beatlesque. The sound effects, which include the tambura and sitar played by Brian Jones, add a really nice flavor to the song, and Mick Jagger's double-tracked lead vocals add so much texture and thickness to his voice, and the lyrics, which are about the 1968 political upheaval in France. Jagger said about Street Fighting Man, quote, Yeah, France was a direct inspiration. Because by contrast, London was very quiet. It was a very strange time in France, but not only in France, but also in America, because the Vietnam War and all these endless disruptions. I thought it was a very good thing at the time. There was all this violence going on. I mean, they almost toppled the government in France. De Gaulle went into this complete funk, as he had in the past, and he went in, sort of locked himself in his house in the country. And so the government was almost inactive, and the French riot police were amazing, unquote. Street Fighting Man is all about Charlie and Keith, though, and the song originated largely from their jamming in the studio, with Keith playing an acoustic guitar through the cassette player again, and Charlie messing around on this miniature toy drum set, which is actually the drum sound that was used on the final cut. The most important song on Beggar's Banquet was, of course, the classic Sympathy for the Devil. Sympathy for the Devil started as a Bob Dylan-style acoustic folk song, inspired by a Russian novel that Mick Jagger and Marianne Faithfull were obsessed with at the time, called The Master and the Margarita by Bulakov. The band started working on the song in late May, early June, and a few of the days of the recording sessions were actually caught on camera. The French filmmaker Jean-Luc Godard wanted to film a movie about rock and roll in the general social and political climate at the time, and the Stones agreed to let him and his film crew in, which gave us some amazing footage of the band recording one of their greatest works. The song started as an acoustic folk tune with blues chords, but as the band started chipping away at it, uh, it took on its own identity, its own personality. The tempo was changed, Charlie got the song moving with a great kind of 6-8 rhythm, some exotic elements were added, and the song really started to come together. Since the recording of the song became such a big event, Mick thought it would be a good idea to have all the Stones, Charlie, Bill, Brian included, along with some members of their entourage like Marianne Faithful and Anita Pallenberg, to come into the studio and sing backup vocals on Sympathy. 
Jagger, who repeatedly asked the listener to, quote, guess his name, is singing from the devil's perspective. So he wanted the backup singers to sing Who Who. This turned out to be hard to sing, so they opted for the more consonant-heavy woo-woo, which is what we hear on the record. Sympathy for the Devil is, to me, a true Jagger Richards masterpiece. Jagger had the main vision for the song, as well as the chords and the lyrics, but the musical identity of the song, to me, is thanks to Keith. The signature bass line on Sympathy for the Devil was not played by Bill Wyman, but by Keith Richards, and it gives the tune that mischievous, bouncy groove, a really inventive bass line that holds the entire song together and pushes it forward. But Keith's most obvious contribution to Sympathy was that guitar solo, honestly one of my favorite guitar solos ever played. The Sympathy solo is so bright that it pierces through the record. It almost sounds out of place, but but Keith was playing this new melody in his solo, and it became a signature riff that to me makes the song what it is. Keith's guitar playing was entering its prime, and the Sympathy for the Devil solo is kind of an example of that. He was finally distinguishing himself as a unique guitarist. He said about his playing in this period, quote, It's almost like you're sort of levitating. You don't even want to touch the strings because they're doing it themselves. And anyway, they'd be too hot, unquote. Sympathy for the Devil was certainly a peak for Jagger and Richards, but it was a really low moment for Brian Jones. Brian showed up to most of the Sympathy sessions completely out of it. He just wasn't in a condition to contribute anything meaningful to the song. In the footage that Jean-Luc Godard shot for the film, you can see Mick Jagger kind of patiently coaching Brian through the very simple chord changes in the song. Uh, and Brian was just playing a very simple acoustic rhythm guitar part, which unfortunately didn't end up in the final cut. Brian Jones played a really diminished role in the recording of Beggar's Banquet. This new direction didn't really fit his interests or his tastes, or so he said. He was still keen on experimenting, and by this point he had all but given up on being the second guitar player for the Rolling Stones. Instead, he'd show up to the studio with something random a sitar, a tambura, a mellotron, and if he was in a state to contribute something, he would add something. Even though he played something on almost every song, his contribution was oftentimes very minimal. His attendance throughout the album sessions was just abysmal, and they started to count on Brian not being there more than they counted on him being there. As a result, Keith played pretty much all of the guitar on the album, elbowing Brian to the side. Charlie Watts said of this, quote, Brian wasn't showing up, and you know what happens when people don't show up. You do it without them, and then when you do it without them, they're not needed, unquote. There was this one song on the album, though, where Brian's touch turned the song from ordinary to extraordinary, proving that sometimes it was still possible for Brian to make really great music. The band was playing a really simple acoustic ballad written by Mick called No Expectations, they were all sitting in a circle in the studio when Brian pulled out his bottleneck slide, kind of like the old days. He had his guitar tuned to open E, and he contributed a really dreary and melancholy but beautiful slide guitar part over Keith's chords. Mick remembered the moment, saying, quote, One time when we sat around on the floor, we played in a circle, playing No Expectations, and he picked up the guitar and played some very pretty lines on it, which you can hear on the record. And that was the last thing I remember him doing that was Brian, or the Brian that could contribute something that was pretty insensitive and made the record sound wonderful, unquote. 
Brian's slide guitar on No Expectations is the defining feature of the song, and to me it demonstrated Brian's strength as a musician. Sometimes he could add something to a song that was so simple, be it the slide guitar on No Expectations, the sitar line on Paint It Black, or the dulcimer riff on Lady Jane. He could sometimes add that fundamental part, the missing piece of a song. And even as his involvement was dwindling and his mental state was deteriorating, Brian could still sometimes add that flavor to the Rolling Stones, and that was so important to their sound throughout the 60s. The lyrics in No Expectations aren't about Brian Jones, but for some reason, they really speak to his role in the band and about his headspace at the time. Once I was a rich man, but now I am so poor. Never in my sweet short life have I felt like this before. Take me to the station and put me on a train. I've got no expectations to pass through here again. By 1968, Brian was no longer a central part of the Rolling Stones. He had a cavalier attitude about the whole thing, and he would often say that he just wasn't interested in making pop music anymore, and that he wanted to do something different. Whatever that was, Brian was growing further away from the rest of the band. Already this was a troubling time for Brian. His isolation from the rest of the band was really starting to show. Mick and Keith's drug trials were very public and ended with their exoneration. Brian Jones's felt much longer, and the consequences were more serious. Brian pleaded guilty to a few of the charges, and his lawyers argued that his drug use was caused by addiction and mental health issues, and they just said that a prison sentence would destroy Brian's mental health. Sadly, the judge sentenced Brian to a year in prison. Like Mick and Keith, he spent a day in prison and launched his appeal efforts, which ended up with a fine of and three years of probation. But unlike Mick and Keith, there were very few headlines, few reporters snapping pictures of him, and no crowds of fans supporting him outside the courtroom. Moreover, three years of probation meant that Brian's brain power was now being used up by paranoia and fear that a cop was going to search his house and land him in prison. None of this was good for Brian, who slipped further and further away from reality, and he became a shell of his former self. He gave up on his quest to get Anita back, and instead, it was just an awkward tension in the studio. He gave up on his quest to become a great blues musician or a really good guitar player, so he barely showed up to the Rolling Stone sessions. Now, what was left was a paranoid, detached, quiet, drug addict, who could barely even play in the band that he started. Beggar's Banquet wouldn't be released until December of 1968, and it fit in perfectly with the sound of the time. Like I said, Bob Dylan kicked off the musical year with John Wesley Harding, that earthy acoustic folk record, and the Beatles, who spent 1967 in an all-out psychedelic experiment, released the hugely popular double album known as the White Album, which turned its back on Sgt. Pepper and Mystery Tour for a more stripped-back, roots-inspired version of rock and roll. Pretty much everywhere you could see this trend, from mainstream acts like Jimi Hendrix, who released Electric Ladyland, uh, The Birds, who went country with Sweetheart of the Rodeo, and newer acts like The Band, who released their iconic debut album, Music from Big Pink, uh, and Led Zeppelin, who began touring and started their live careers in the fall of 1968, playing hardcore guitar, bass, and drum blues rock. Rock and roll made a huge U-turn. The styles just changed. 
the colorful eccentric clothing worn by rock stars was replaced by earth tones and denim. Musically, no longer was overproduced, exotic, and over-the-top records the way to go. That wasn't cool anymore. What was cool was simple, guitar-based drum, maybe piano, Americana-style rock and roll. Beggar's Banquet couldn't have been more suited for this type of music. With the acoustic guitar-driven blues and folk on Prodigal Son, No Expectations and Salt of the Earth, to the pure rock and roll songs like Sympathy, Street Fighting Man, and Stray Cat Blues. Throughout 1968, and as the band awaited the release of Beggar's Banquet, they were doing a whole bunch of different stuff. Mick Jagger spent a lot of time filming a movie called Performance, an artsy crime drama where he plays a rock star named Turner, sort of a version of himself, also starring in the film was the one and only Anita Pallenberg, Keith Richards' girlfriend. Pretty quickly, Mick and Anita started to hook up on the set of the film, something Keith was suspicious of. He said, quote, I didn't find out for ages about Mick and Anita, but I smelled it. Mostly from Mick, who didn't give any sign of it, which is why I smelled it. The old lady comes back at night complaining about the set and blah, blah, blah. But at the same time, I know the old lady, and the odd time she didn't come home at night, I'd go around somewhere and see another girlfriend. I never expected anything from Anita. I mean, hey, I'd stolen her from Brian, so you've got Mick now. What do you fancy, this or that?" Unquote. Keith acts like he didn't care, but at the time, this caused some tension between him and Mick, though they never got into a fight about it. Keith retaliated by hooking up with Marianne Faithful, Mick's girlfriend, but during the filming of performance, Keith's anxiety about the situation was obvious. He even began writing Gimme Shelter, which was sort of about his jealousy over the whole situation. He said, quote, There was this incredible storm over London. It was a shitty day. I had nothing better to do. It became much more metaphorical with all the other contexts and everything. But at the time, I wasn't thinking, oh my god, there's my old lady shooting a movie in a bath with Mick Jagger. My thought was storms on other people's minds, not mine. It just happened to hit the moment. Only later did I realize this will have more meaning than I thought at the time. Unquote. Beggar's Banquet was being held up because the band wanted a really good mix of the record, which caused Mick, Keith, and Jimmy Miller to travel all over LA to properly mix the album. Uh, And they also had some conflicts with the record company over the cover. The band wanted a cover to be a vandalized public toilet with writing all over the wall. This is often the cover that you can see today. In 2009, when the Rolling Stones remastered all their albums, uh, they replaced the Beggar's Banquet cover with the cover they initially wanted. But the record company thought it was so offensive and they just did not allow it. They refused to put that cover on the album. Besides, with their satanic majesties, they wanted the Rolling Stones' name, the Rolling Stones, to be clearly written in writing on the album cover. So it was decided that the Rolling Stones would just put out a simple cover that said simply, Rolling Stones Beggar's Banquet RSVP, kind of like a wedding invitation. Beggar's Banquet was a big album for the Stones, so they knew that they wanted everything to be perfect. To promote the album, usually they'd go on tour, but thanks to Brian's drug busts, touring internationally just wasn't possible, especially not in America, and the band simply didn't have the time or the energy to organize a tour of Britain to support the album. 
So they settled on making a color movie to be played in TV and theaters, showcasing the Rolling Stones playing these songs live. A simple concert film or taped performance wasn't enough, though. Mick Jagger came up with a much more extravagant idea, the Rolling Stones' rock and roll circus. The idea was that the Rolling Stones would headline a bill of top rock and roll bands to be filmed in front of a live studio audience, all showcasing their music in a circus-themed set. People like Mick Jagger grew up going to circuses. It was a really common and fond memory for children of that generation, so he wanted to mix that childhood memory with the new show business of the day, rock and roll. The original idea was actually developed by Mick Jagger and Pete Townsend of The Who and Ronnie Lane of The Small Faces, uh, the original lineup for Rock and Roll Circus. They kind of thought up this idea of having a circus-themed rock and roll show. The lineup changed quite a bit from that original one, though. The Small Faces, who were on the verge of a breakup throughout 68, backed out. Traffic was busy, and Cream had just broken up, so they were unavailable. The Eiley Brothers and Johnny Cash both declined to play, and The Who agreed to join the circus, uh, as did the up-and-coming American act Taj Mahal. Another new band, Jethro Tull, joined the bill. So did Marianne Faithful, Mick's girlfriend, who was also quite a popular singer at the time. The Stones were also able to land individual stars from some of the biggest bands of the era. John Lennon from The Beatles, Eric Clapton from Cream, and Mitch Mitchell from The Jimi Hendrix Experience all agreed to perform together as a band called The Dirty Mac, with Keith Richards joining them on bass. Rock and Roll Circus was directed by Michael Lindsay Hogg, who would go on to film the Beatles' Let It Be album just a few weeks later. Filming took place over a couple of days beginning in December, with the rock and roll performances being filmed between circus acts like magicians and trapeze artists. It was a pretty expensive affair. Bill Wyman remembers the wardrobes for the show. Quote, Costumes ordered from a variety of sources promised a truly visual extravaganza. 400 ponchos and hats for the audience, a crepe John Harlow dress for Marianne, a red satin top, trousers and cap with red and black stockings and shoes for me, a magician's cloak and cap for Brian, a rainbow suit and shoes for Charlie, a military outfit for Keith, and for Mick, a ringmaster's outfit plus two sweaters, a sequin dress, cloak false front trousers and tails, an acrobat costume for Keith Moon, and even a long beard for Anita, unquote. Mick kicked off the evening by introducing Jethro Tull, who performed their classic song, Song for Jeffrey. And Ian Anderson, one of the most unusual frontmen in rock and roll, played his flute while the band mimed their performance. Interestingly, Black Sabbath's guitar player, Tony Iommi, actually played guitar for Jethro Tull at Rock and Roll Circus. He temporarily left Sabbath to join Jethro Tull, but he quickly went back to Ozzy and the rest of the guys just before their first album was released because he didn't really fit in with Tull. And then Keith Richards introduced the second biggest act of the night, The Who, who played an incredibly tight and energetic performance of their 1966 mini-rock opera song, A Quick One While He's Away. Then came Taj Mahal and Marianne Faithful, who got the audience warmed up for The Dirty Mac, who played an incredible version of the Beatles song, Your Blues, with some incredibly impressive drums and Eric Clapton's guitar licks, which really brought the song to a new level. 
John Lennon's vocals, which were rarely heard live anymore, proved that he still had it. After staying up all night, spending hours standing around on a movie set, it was time for the Rolling Stones to make their appearance. The audience was exhausted, and so was the band. John Lennon introduced the Stones, and they began their set with Jumpin' Jack Flash, uh, with Keith playing a black Les Paul and Brian playing a really cool gold top. They followed Flash with a bluesy parachute woman, and then went into No Expectations with Brian Jones sitting on stage playing slide guitar for the last time of his career. The Stones then played a new song that they'd been working on, which would be on their next album, called You Can't Always Get What You Want, before ending their set with Sympathy for the Devil. Mick's performance in Sympathy was just insane. He ripped off his shirt, he was shrieking into the camera, he was wearing makeup. Uh, the show ended, to everyone's relief, with uh, all the performers gathered around the Stones as they sang Salt of the Earth and danced and swayed around the room. For the Stones, the rock and roll circus performance was good, but there was something kind of artificial about it. Perhaps it was because the audience were sort of extras, not like a real concert audience. This wasn't really a live show. They played in front of a live studio audience in a movie set, not a stage, and a lot of the music was edited in post-production. Uh, maybe it was because they were all exhausted after spending a day waiting around to play. Whatever the reason, it wasn't the same as a real Rolling Stones live show. They could definitely do better. Mick Jagger realized all of this when they were editing the film. He felt that the band's performance was kind of lackluster, especially compared to The Who, who looked young and exciting. So pretty quickly, he decided to scrap the film altogether. Rock and Roll Circus, which remained unreleased until pretty recently, was Brian Jones' final appearance with the Rolling Stones, and it showed pretty much everyone who was at the show that things really were going downhill for Brian. Brian looked heavier. He was at times almost completely out of it. Ian Anderson remarked that Brian had trouble even tuning his guitar. When Brian was on stage, gone was his stage presence. He didn't dance. He didn't engage with the crowd. He just stood there like a statue, playing with no energy and was barely audible in the final mix. Pete Townsend later recalled how shocked he was to see Brian Jones in the condition that he was in. He said, quote, When we played Rock and Roll Circus, I was very upset about Brian's condition. Brian was defeated. I took Mick and Keith aside, and they were quite frank about it all. They said Brian had ceased to function. They were afraid he would slip away. They certainly were not hard-nosed about him, but they were determined not to let him drag them down. Unquote. Thank you so much for listening to Rock Band's podcast. Make sure to subscribe to Rock Band's podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Instagram at Rock Band's Podcast and share us with all of your rock and roll loving friends. All right, until next time, listen to Beggar's Banquet. <laughs> <laughs>